Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. This is the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. And you're very welcome back to what I suppose, Peggy, we can call the Bertie O'Hearn story, or at least the Bertie years, because we're, we're really telling the full narrative of Bertie O'Hearn's rise to power. And it's fair to say his almost unprecedented political success. If you look at Bertie O'Hearn in just pure, raw political terms, he's the only leader of this country since independence, apart from Eamon de Valera, to win three successive general elections and be returned as Taoiseach. Yeah, I am. Maybe we can call it an era or or an epoch even. But it's certainly a period of, I would argue, very consequential period of modern Irish political history and its dominant figure. I am prompted to ask you, and you may not be comfortable with this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is Bertie the Man. Who is this person and what are his qualities and indeed perhaps his, his flaws that bring him to this point of success. And also we should say, because we mentioned it the last time around, that led to a series of decisions that were extremely consequential and not necessarily for the good for the long term of this country. I ask because a lot of people listening to this, presumably we will be refreshing their memories, a lot of them, about things that happened and they'll remember things that happened afterwards. And there is a huge ambiguity about Bertie O'Hearn and his legacy. And I think that's one of the interesting things about him. And it's, I suppose, one of the reasons why people continue to be fascinated with him and why and why he still occupies, you know, a, an outsized place in the national consciousness. There, there is a, I, there is a I, thing I about, say. that strikes me, and you'll have, you'll have seen this possibly more than me, but for anybody in public life, but politicians in, in this instance, there there's often a distance between the persona and the reality. So in the case of, of Bertie O'Hearn, it seems to me there was a Bertie persona. It's kind of almost embodied in the name, the slightly comic name, and his, you know, hail fellow well met, clap on the back, pint of bass, you know, apparently conviviality. And on the other hand, I get the sense sometimes of somebody who was quite a, you know, quite a lonely, solitary figure. Quite a solitary figure. Um, Enda Kenny, uh, speaking in tribute of him when he was retiring uh, as Taoiseach, described him uh, as a, a sociable loner. And I think there's something in that. He was famously sociable and he was the guy for pints down in Fagans with his pals, absolutely loyal pals uh, that surrounded him from the earliest days in, in Drumcondra. And that is extended further into Fianna Fáil. And I mean, it kind of sounds mad to say it, but there was a, a barely sort of uttered critique of him in Fianna Fáil that, that he, he wasn't a real Fianna, real Fianna Fáiler in that you know, while he was certainly Fianna Fáil supporting, grew up uh, in a very Republican household, Fianna Fáil 
working class republicanism was his natural credo. And, you know, I never really bought that. I thought it was kind of nonsensical, but it was there all the same. Maybe amongst some traditional Fianna Fáil blue bloods uh, or something that uh, Ahern was something of almost an Aravist in uh, into the party. Again, that's like not a something that I would necessarily uh, agree with, but it was certainly there. And what he did, I think, certainly in his own constituency, is that he made the Fianna Fáil organisation his own. And, and that was replicated in in some other constituencies and people, some people in the party would say that that was not necessarily a healthy thing for the party in the long run and that while it assisted in the implementation of electoral strategy and candidate strategy on the ground in elections, that was to help him achieve his his three majorities, that it also contributed to a sort of hollowing out of the party organisation in many places. I think it kind of demonstrates that his legacy is kind of contested and his... The appreciation of Bertie Ahern, the conception of Bertie Ahern at all the way through the period in which we've been discussing is is never quite fixed. He remains a sort of ambiguous figure within and without the party amongst the larger public. And maybe that was one of the things that enabled people to project onto him what they wanted in a political leader. So the business men supporting Fianna Fáil and for a time funding Fianna Fáil so spectacularly and ultimately so ruinously for uh, for the party in terms of its public reputation, they could project onto him the friend of business who knew how to cut corners and would help them out. People in his constituency saw the constituency man. But ordinary people all over the country saw a hard-working dub made good with whom they had... They established a sort of a personal connection through his, at that stage, I think, unparalleled ability to communicate politically with uh, people, all of which is a rather long-winded way of saying it's not straightforward who he was and, and I suppose who he is. OK, so let's get back to our story. We're in 2006. The uh, the serious blip, which we talked about in the last episode of the 2004 local and European elections, has been addressed in certain ways in terms of the changes that have been made, dispatching Charlie McCreevy to Europe, putting Brian Cowan in place, having a more collegiate approach to financial matters, but really opening the spigot and the tap. And just to kind of describe the time, this is now the time when you get into a taxi and you discover that the driver has a Bulgarian property portfolio. There's helicopters like Apocalypse Now carrying developers to the Galway tent at the races. This is, you know, the the apogee of this the, is, uh, is, is, is late Celtic stage tiger. Celtic Tiger yeah. at its hubristic best. And you know, younger listeners <laughs> who are no doubt tuning in in their droves. Uh, might wonder, you know, about, you know, that, that that's an exaggeration, but taxi drivers telling you they bought Bulgarian apartments or helicopters filling the air at the Galway races. It's absolutely not. That's exactly what uh, it was like. And we spoke the last time at the conclusion of the last episode about uh, about this and how there is a growing sense of 
you know, can this really go on? Property prices have begun to level off. There's a bit of anxiety in the entire property industry, building, state agency, property investment. There's a bit of an anxiety that this spectacular growth that we've seen for 10 years isn't going to continue. And I think we concluded by something we say, but actually what people are going to really fixate upon at this stage and into the next general election is not the country's finances, but it is Bertie Hearn's so finance. Tell us about that. So we are sitting uh, on the second floor uh, here in, in the Irish Times and I don't know, a few yards from where we sit. In September of 2006, our colleague Colm Keena got an envelope addressed to him and opened it up and it was a bunch of documents detailing the tribunal's investigations into Bertie Ahern's finances. The tribunal is in the course of investigating some of the allegations that have been made to it, in particular some of the allegations that have been made to it by a man called Tom Gilmartin, who was a failed property developer, a property developer who had some projects that did not uh, come to fruition himself. And they have been, in the course of examining those allegations, they've been looking at the bank accounts of senior politicians. And among those senior politicians are Bertie Ahern. And they have been in contact with Bertie Ahern about the source of large lodgements that they see popping up in his bank accounts from 1993 onwards. And the fact that the tribunal are investigating these a series of payments, including cash payments to Bertie Ahern, is detailed in these documents. At a time when he was Colin Minister Keener. for Finance, it's important to say. He was Minister well. for Finance at this point in 1993. He's Minister for, uh, for Finance, Minister for Finance 1993-1994. Anyway, so the Irish Times ran this story and, you know, we use the term bombshell a lot, but this was a genuine political bombshell in the sense that Irish politics would not be the same after this story as, uh, as it was beforehand. And of course, there's an enormous political explosion when this, when this bombshell, that's what happens when bombshells land, I suppose. There's an explosion. And the story would, of course, would, you know, would end up, Dog Monthly retires from politics for years afterwards. So, so in the, in the manner of these things, the story gives rise to an explosion of questions from other media following up on, uh, on the story. And a few days later, Bertie Hearn gives, uh, I suppose, an emotional interview to Brian Dobson in which he gives a kind of slightly shambolic, but to an awful lot of viewers, a very compelling and convincing account of how his friends had helped him out financially when he was at a very low point in his life following separation from his wife, Miriam. He said his savings had been wiped out by the financial demands of the end of his marriage and his friends had helped them and he wanted to put money aside for his children and so forth. As I say, the account jumped around the place a lot. It was conducted in his St. Luke's office in Drumcondra by Brian Dobson. It's carried live on the 6-1 News. The entire country is watching and uh, Miriam Lord, who uh, chronicled this whole period brilliantly in the Irish Times, writes the following day and is often... I think, forms judgments that are entirely in tune with how the general public are thinking about it. Miriam wrote afterwards, she said, you want to be made of stone not to be moved by the performance last night. And 
even though it was clear that the tribunal didn't believe the accounts that Bertie Ahern had been giving them in correspondence over the previous years, and his lawyers have been in a constant battle with the tribunal, and even though there was widespread disbelief about how could this story really be true, saying he didn't have a bank account at a time when he was finance I mean, minister. That must seem astonishing in, now to people who weren't around cash. at the time. Absolutely, thinking, yeah, yeah. thinking back 30 years, the minister, you know, in, in an age minister of finance, revolution, exactly. that will pay and cashless transactions. He was getting his checks and he was yeah. cashing the checks and he was holding on yeah. to the cash. He was giving some of the cash to Mary, putting some of it here and keeping it in a safe in the office. Maybe the safe was in St. Luke's, maybe it was in the Department of Finance. Everyone just said, like... I, you know, come again? Really? Really? Could this be true? But people kind of bought it, really. A lot of people bought it. And they weren't entirely shelving their scepticism about it. But they appear, it seems kind of peculiar in hindsight. You have to understand, you know, we're coming at this after years of revelations of tribunals and we know all about Bertie Hearn's finances, etc., etc. We know what happened. At the time, People didn't know any of that stuff. They just this story has landed. Bertie gives a convincing uh, account of what was a kind of slightly chaotic and difficult time uh, in his life, and it is. And Bertie kept saying, "You know, it was unorthodox. I accept it was unorthodox, but you know, what can I say? It was a dark." Time so, in my life. So, as it would turn out, there was, there was quite a lot of complexity, and we're not going to go into the absolute details of you know. No, we're not because know, the, we would we would go on we way beyond the existing forty-seven yeah. episodes if we did. Yeah. But suffice to say, I say that many people bought it. How do we know that? There was the Irish Times conducted a poll uh, three weeks later, and free default support had gone up by eight points in that poll, and that kind of buried it as a political issue, really, until the following year. And uh, I say, you know. But I don't think a kind of a ticking time bomb, maybe, or at least is. had the potential yeah. to be one. It is. It yeah. is. It is definitely a ticking time bomb, and it is very clear that there have been detailed probes by the tribunal into Bertie Ahern's finances, and that the tribunal does not believe the accounts that Bertie Ahern has given, and that is not going to go away forever. But it goes away as a live political issue, really, until following year when we're into a general election campaign. Now, that general election campaign had been preceded by various stories which appear to be sourced from the tribunal. So, for instance, Bertie Arne has given a private interview to the tribunal as part of its investigations in, I think, February of 2007. And excerpts of that are circulated to the peop- other tribunal witnesses that are concerned. And they leak out. And, not, not surprisingly, And, and not surprisingly, yeah. They, yeah. they leak mm. out. And Ahern's people are making the point at this stage that this material at a, you know, a decisive point in the political timetable, this material is being sent out from the tribunal in the full knowledge that it is going to be leaked and cause damage to Bertie Ahern in the run into a general election. And it's kind of difficult to argue with that. And so Bertie Ahern approaches this third general election in 2007 with the economy still going gangbusters, the power sharing institutions up and running in Northern Ireland, his great political legacy, but this cloud of the drip, drip and leaks from the tribunal about his own finances overshadowing it. And hold that thought for a moment and then we'll talk about that election campaign. And you're very welcome back. So, Pat, we have arrived at the 2007 election, Bertie Ahern's third election as as Fianna Fáil leader, uh, his third campaign. That's right, yeah. And so 
you know, Fianna Fáil is approaching it after a decade in power. And in the approach to that election, Hearn and his election strategists come to believe that they couldn't just do another election campaign, the same as the previous one, promising the sun, moon and stars to everybody. For one point, the opposition were already going to do that. And it's a much more formidable opposition that he's up against this time than it was in 2002. Enda Kenny is leading Fianna Gael. Pat Rabbit is leading Labour. And they've established what they call the Mullingar Accord. You know, I mean, it's hardly the, you know, the Treaty of Vienna. Yeah, it's but, not that glamorous uh, really, is it? No. But it is a pre-election pact between them and that they, their combined forces, they want to form a coalition government afterwards. They're taking on Bertie Hearn. They've already promised tax cuts ahead of a, anything that Fianna Gael are going to do. And so Fianna Fáil decides, Hearn and his, uh, and his guys decide that, no, we're not going to try and outdo them. We're going to try and undermine the opposition promises as unrealistic. And they had this idea that Fianna Fáil will promise less but deliver more. In the week before the Ordesh, which is just before the campaign starts, Ahern starts to have second thoughts about this. And I think really this is the action of a man whose confidence is rattled. And it's rattled by not just the revelations from the tribunal that we've seen thus far, but by the knowledge of what may come in terms of the tribunals. uh, And also, is there any sense at all at that time that there are storm clouds gathering on the international front? Because there are rumblings on the international markets, the beginnings of signs of instability in American banks and loans, those kind of things are out there. Are they just still too far away to be heard? At this stage in the early part of 2007, these are really only faint rumblings. But what is happening in the Irish exchequer's numbers is you're beginning to see a softening of the property market and therefore a softening of all the taxes that come from that. And there's a, there that is source. a lot of talk, or we're, we're just getting into that era where there's a lot of talk about soft landings. There's a lot of optimistic predictions about how, if there were to be some turbulence and a few problems, the Irish economy is it's robust and well Fundamentals are sound, etc., etc. So anyway, Bertie Hearn decides that this approach of trying to portray Fianna Fáil as the prudent and sensible ones who won't promise you too much and will maintain a sensible hand on the economic tiller. Ahern. And this all actually is concertinaed within a couple of days because in the run-up to that Ordesh speech, he first voices his doubts to his aides early on in that week. And there's this rolling conversation that takes place over a couple of days. And eventually, two days before the Ordesh speech is due to be delivered, Ahern says, you know, no, we're not going to go with that. Now, he doesn't tell his own ministers about the change in strategy. And Seamus Brennan, who's one of his ministers, is detailed to go out and a pre-Ordesh briefing to the, which I remember quite well, before the Ordesh, he says, now, you know, don't expect to hear a load of promises from Fianna Fáil over this weekend. And that's, and that's, that's ex- not that's what exactly, we're about. That's exactly uh, what yeah, happens. Yeah, he's, made right, look like a, he's made to look like a dunce. I, cut, I, I do remember that. Is this cut like to, cut a, to the a, sense, a feeling in Bertie O'Hearn's political waters or is it informed by polling or anything more scientific than like that? It's very much a feeling in his waters. It is Eamon de Valera, you know, seeking to know the mind of the Irish people and looking into uh, his own heart. And mm. as we shall come to see, it's entirely borne out by... No, we shouldn't uh, underestimate those, kind of, of those kinds the, of instincts uh, in a good politician. And it's we? also yeah. testament, I think, to notwithstanding the fact that he is, you know, 
you know, he's been 10 years Taoiseach. He's thought of differently by people. So one of the things Fianna Fáil do in the course of this election campaign is they try to play up to him as, you know, as Bertie the statesman. So he has this meeting with Ian Paisley at the at the site of the, the Battle of the Boyne. There's a celebrated handshake between Paisley and Ahern. And there's also an address to the Joint Houses uh, of Parliament in Westminster delivered in Westminster Hall. So people know that he's not just the kind of fella in 1997 who's promising to get in and roll up his sleeves and walk Absolutely. hard an ordinary fella no, no more, he is a no more statesman anorakis. it's he Louis Copeland suits now uh, and the hair's been cut properly stage. and he's known around the world but yeah. he still has that acute political antennae for what Middle Ireland is thinking and he deploys it here now what he doesn't do of course there's outrage in among some of his ministers afterwards not least that he's done this thing when they'd all agreed to do the other thing but because he hasn't told them of course and so preparations are ongoing for the uh, general election which eventually comes uh, at the end of May but Bertie Hearn almost begins to withdraw into himself at this stage as if the prospect the great campaigner the man who wants to get out and meet the meet his people doesn't want to get out and you know, his, his aides are saying that they can't get him out of Drum Condor, can't get him out of the Taoiseach's office. He doesn't want to go out and campaign. He won't tell them when he plans to call the election. And you may recall that the election is called at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. He goes out to Orasanukturan to get Mary McAleese, who's president at the time, before she departs that morning for a tour of the United States to dissolve the doll. Like he couldn't do it the previous week or he couldn't do it at, uh, you so, know... So, on, so tell me, what, what, what's, what's going on there? Is this a kind of a thing that happens to a lot of people when they're in power for a very long time? That their world kind of shrinks around them, that maybe sorts of paranoias start to set in, that, you know, they start thinking differently about who they are and their place in the world? Yeah, maybe it's a bit feels, of that. But, feels it's feels also a bit like that. but it's also a function of the very real pressure that he is under from the tribunal because at this time the tribunal is due to begin public hearings into the module that will include Bertie Ahern's finances and it is due to do that on the 30th of April 2007. And so on the 29th of April Ahern calls the election. And obviously then those hearings have to be deferred. Well, his lawyers write to the tribunal and they say, you now have to defer these hearings. And if you don't defer these hearings, and they were very clear, certainly among themselves, that if the tribunal did not defer those hearings, they would be down to the High Court that morning seeking uh, an order of the High Court to compel the tribunal to defer the hearings. In the event, Judge Alamahan comes in and goes, OK, we can't hold the hearings and the election campaign is on. Bertie Hearn gives the opening press conference of the campaign uh, on the Monday. A uh, room full of journalists down the Treasury building, which is their, where their headquarters is. He delivers a statement and then turns around and walks off and doesn't take any questions. And this pattern continues for the first couple of weeks of the campaign, which is going disastrously for Fianna Fáil. Even though they're not doing that quite that badly in the polls, they are, the campaign itself is turning into a disaster. Bertie turns up at campaign events, journalists shout questions at him about his finances and the leaks from his own statements to the tribunal that have been given in private are continuing throughout this time. The Mail on Sunday in particular is getting them. That provides this kind of doom loop where Bertie Hearn for Fianna Fáil, where the revelations come out, the 
journalists seek to question Bertie Ahern on it, he won't answer or gives halting answers, says, oh, it's a matter for the tribunal. They keep asking questions. He shuffles off. Fianna Fáil doesn't get to talk about its agenda at all. And the whole thing is a disaster. And it really only begins to turn around towards the end of the campaign when three of his ministers go to him, uh, Brian Callum, Micheál Martin, Dermot Ahern, go to him. And, you know, we don't know what transpired between them. Such accounts as I was able to get suggest that they put questions to him. He answered them very comprehensively in what would become a lengthy statement about his finances that he supplies over the course of the campaign. And gradually things begin to turn around. Brian Cowan gives a really strong performance throughout the campaign. He's hammering, he's Minister of Finance and he's hammering away. Yeah, he's certainly not hiding economy. away. He's very yeah. forthright, he's out very there, pugnacious. He's very pugnacious. Yeah. He's taking on the opposition, he's taking on journalists. But probably the real turning point in that campaign is the debate. And this takes place a week before polling day. And Bertie Aaron goes out to RTE and he pretty clearly defeats Enda Kenny in the debate. Although I do remember this. And I remember I was one of many people who wrote about this at the time. I thought it was pretty clear that uh, that he'd won. The media coverage was sort of 50-50 on it. There were a lot of bad takes. <laughs> yeah, I was... I, was, uh, I, I thought... I thought that Ahern had won it pretty much hands down. Mm. Though, um, though the headline of the Irish Times uh, the following day, which organisation I had not yet uh, joined at that stage, uh, the headline was T-shirt scores on substance, Kenny scores on style or something like that. Yeah, you know, but, yeah that's not the way I read it. Uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, in the aftermath of that, the day after that, there's turned out to be quite an influential edition of The Late Late Show, a long-running chat show um, uh, presented. Which you, you may have heard of. You may have heard of in recent mm. weeks. Mm. And, uh, and Owen Harris, who is the Sunday Independent commentator, very influential commentator uh, in the Sunday Independent at the time. And he makes this really strong case for... Bertie Ahern, you know, asking people to concentrate on his decency and ordinariness and the extraordinariness of his achievements economically and in Northern Ireland. And Harris, of course, had been a vocal opponent of the peace process earlier on, but went on to admit that he'd been wrong about that and he was uh, and he was wrong about Ahern becomes a very strong supporter of Ahern in the course of that and actually subsequent to the election is nominated to the Shannad by Bertie Ahern. But there is this sense that things then begin to turn in the last week. The question is, will they turn quickly enough to give him a third election victory, third term in office? And they do. When the results come in, he wins more than 41% of the vote. Fianna Fáil drops, I think, by, by one seat. But he is in the driving seat to form a government again, which he duly does. And with interestingly, the Green Party he, and the remnants he, of the he didn't Democrats. necessarily need the Green Party. But he was keen to have the Green Party, and not for the first time. He was keen to have a buffer, which was more than anywhere near the bare minimum for a majority. He wanted he wanted to build something more comfortable, something better upholstered in terms of a government. Yeah, I mean, he wanted, he very definitely wanted Harney back in. So the PDs are decimated. They've won two seats afterwards. Harney's back in. She continues as Minister for Health. He also has the support of a couple of independents. He could have made a bare majority without the Greens, but he chooses to bring in the Greens or he chooses to open negotiations with the Greens and give them a deal that they find irresistible. And yeah, I suppose maybe you could say in hindsight that that was in anticipation of the very difficult times to come and the pressure that his majority was, or the majority 
Fianna Fáil had was going to be put under in the years ahead. Because by the time we spoke a few minutes ago about how the economic signals looked in the early part of that year and there's a few worrying signs in the early part of that year, by the time you get to the middle of the year, it's very clear that many of the principal taxation headings in the exchequer returns are returned. There is less money coming in than they previously thought. And I remember writing a piece in the Business Post around that time pointing out that actually the Department of Finance has a very conservative estimates of tax receipts uh, it generally put into its numbers. And the trend had been for those estimates of receipts to be significantly overshot by the actual receipts. As, as they are these days, quite and a lot of if, the time. So if mm. the tax receipts that were coming in under the various headings, various tax headings, were already undershooting, what that meant is that we were headed for very significant deficits. And what that meant in turn is that we were headed for restrictions on spending and that, you know, whatever about a honeymoon for that government, there was going to be very difficult decisions. And I think as you get into that 2007, 2008 winter, you start seeing signs like the Northern Rock crisis and things like that start happening. People queuing outside banks looking to get their money. Never a good sign. this happens in the autumn of 2007. In August of 2007, really only weeks after the government was formed subsequent to the election, you see the collapse of subprime lenders in the United States. So the global financial earthquake that would turn into the financial crisis has already begun at this stage. And a responsible government would have been immediately on top of that. Albeit that they're just after a long election campaign, very difficult political period, everybody takes August off and all of that. By the time you get to September and government thoughts are turning towards a formulation of a budget, it's very clear that there's something substantial going on in the public finances, but the government doesn't get to to grips with that. It doesn't deal with that. And part of the reason for that is because its leader is a about to get destroyed by the tribunal. Hold that thought and we'll be back after this short break. You're listening to the Irish Times. So we're back to the tribunal again. That ticking bomb is ticking louder at this point and it's about to explode. Yeah, and, you know, look, as, as we've said repeatedly, you know, be here and the cows come home if we went through blow by blow the accounts uh, of the tribunal's investigations. So just just to recap, right, so the tribunal is investigating Bertie Ahern's finances. It has found lodgements in Bertie Ahern's accounts that it says accord to dollar and sterling amounts. And it wants to know what the source of these lodgements are. And Ahern has given some explanations and they don't think that those explanations stack up. All of this has happened in private, but it's about to start happening in public. And in September, Bertie goes to the tribunal and it's an absolute circus, you know. There's crowds outside, some of them are cheering him, some of them are booing them. There's a place that's absolutely packed with reporters and Aaron will appear a couple of times at, uh, at the tribunal. We'll go on to talk about the last one shortly. He appears in September, he appears in December and he appears the, uh, appears the following February. But there's other witnesses as well. And one of those uh, that autumn is 
Michal Wall. And Michal Wall is a, he owns a transport business. He owns a fleet of buses in Manchester. He has met Ahern when Ahern has gone over for Manchester, Manchester United, United games. Yeah. And he's involved in the Irish community there. He's been at a couple of dinners and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and like he's, he's a peculiar character, but he's suddenly to come in and, and play this central role in the story of Bertie Ahern's finances and his house. And so Michal Wall isn't just a bus driver or a, a owner of a bus business in Manchester. He's also at one stage Bertie Ahern's landlord in Dublin. So how did this come to pass? Well, he explained to the tribunal that he had thought about establishing a business in Dublin and he decided to buy a house. And he subcontracted essentially that task to Celia Larkin, Bertie Ahern's then partner, whom he has met through Bertie Hearn. And Celia Larkin identifies suitable property. Michal Wall buys it and he agrees to rent the house to Bertie Hearn with an option to purchase while he contemplates further his move over to establish business in Dublin, which incidentally never happened. All this takes place while Hearn was actually expecting to become Taoiseach in late 1994. And when concerns about his Domestic arrangements, where does the Taoiseach live? People of Ireland want to know where he sleeps, etc., etc., were first publicly aired. Now, while the lads were striking this agreement, Ahern, and this is all from the evidence to the tribunal, Ahern mentioned that, you know, this house might need a conservatory and might need some other alterations. So in his next trip over to Dublin, Michal Wall brings a suitcase of cash containing... As you do. do. 30,000 pounds with him. And so he takes out a few thousand for himself, then he hands it over to Ahern and Larkin. And Bertie was asked, you know, what was your reaction when he gave this bag of money? He says, uh, no particular reaction whatsoever. Now, Michal Wall would later decide that he's not going to establish business in Dublin and he sold the house to Ahern. Though, curiously, he had already decided to leave the house to Bertie in his will that he has made at this stage. And this was Bertie Hearn's explanation for the sum of money which turned up in his bank accounts at, uh, at the time. And Michal Wall's account bore that out. Celia Larkin's account bore it out. But I think it's fair to say that it met with widespread uh, scepticism. Or, and or, it's or this, even incredulity. And even incredulity. And it's these sort of explanations that I think not just are clearly not accepted by the tribunal at the time. But also they begin to chip away uh, in the court of, uh, of public opinion. And really, there's no let up. The tribunal goes all through the autumn. It goes into the early months of 2008. So Ahern is back in the witness box on 21st of February in 2008. There's very bitter, fractious exchanges between his legal team and the tribunal. And clearly the two sides are at daggers drawn at this stage. And Ahern has been grilled about lodgements from accounts in the Irish Permanent. There's an account that he had previously forgotten to tell the tribunal about. He said some of the money might have been from his late father's estate. He wasn't sure. He said some of it might have come from what he termed personal donations for my personal use, whatever that was. 
And then one of the accounts showed a withdrawal of £30,000. And Hearn said that this was for a staff member in St. Luke's and uh, her elderly relatives uh, had a difficulty when their landlord died. They faced possible eviction and the money was loaned to these elderly people so they could buy the house and this, the house was now owned by a staff member in St. Luke's. And that kind of hung in the air for a day and they returned to it the following day. And the tribunal council played with it for a little bit. And it's all kind of quite theatrical. And eventually he asks the question, who is the staff member that now owns the house? And Bertie gives the answer, it's Celia Larkin. And really, I think you cross a threshold there. And from then on, the destruction of Bertie Hearn by the tribunal, because that's, that's what it was, accelerates. And a few weeks later, his secretary, Gráinne Carruth, is in the witness box. And she gets two days of a pretty brutal cross-examination by Des O'Neill, who's the counsel for the tribunal. And she's forced to admit that some of the earlier evidence that she has given might have been incorrect. And O'Neill says, you know, you know that the consequences of lying to the tribunal mean there could be massive fines. You could go to jail. She accepts then as a matter of probability that she might have lodged Sterling uh, to Ahern's account, she breaks down in tears. And at one stage, she tells the tribunal, I just want to go home. And there's a strong sense out of that, isn't it? That even apart from all these transactions, that here is a sense that here is a, uh, a woman in a junior position who has been sent out to suffer because this man, the most powerful man in the country, is not telling the truth. And Ahern is furious at the treatment of her. But yes. I think things have begun to turn with the Celia Larkin revelation and they turn maybe definitively with Gronje Karuth's evidence because it's no longer about, at that stage, I think in the mind of lots of people, it's no longer about, well, there was this amount in this account and where did you get that amount from and that account, that money went over there and the, the receipt doesn't add up to what you say, say it does and blah, blah, blah. It's personified in the appearances, first of all, by Ahern, where he names Larkin as having been the beneficiary of a loan, which was subsequently repaid uh, uh, and all that. And then in the appearance of, of Karuth, where lots of people conclude that, that Bertie Ahern has sent this poor woman out to lie for him mm-hmm. and she's been caught and now she has to carry the can. So I think the ticking bomb has gone off and we are now amidst the debris trying to figure out what is going to happen to the future political career of the Taoiseach Bertie Ahern. And it's inevitable at this stage. It's only a matter of time. And, you know, the in the workings of government, I wrote about it a lot at the time because the financial situation for government is getting worse. Mm. This is no time to be messing around. 2008, you know, the students of the, the banking crash will identify a couple of dates in 2008. One of them is the St. Patrick's Day when the shares in Anglo-Irish Bank lose half of their value. It's called the St. Patrick's Day Massacre. And so this isn't just a matter of tax heads undershooting in the exchequer finances. There is clearly something very bad taking shape on global financial 
markets. And Ireland is one of the most globalised countries in the world and it is not going to be immune from that. We also have an outsized banking and property development sector and at this stage people are really, really beginning to get worried. But the government is paralysed because of what's happening to its leader. So his resignation at this stage is inevitable. The only question is when and on the 2nd of April it happens. He assembles his ministers. He delivers a statement from the steps inside the front doors of government buildings. He says he will he, uh, he will resign as Taoiseach on the 6th of May. And uh, and uh, and he does. And that's the Bertie Hearn era. And that's the end of the story. Well, no, it's not quite the end of the story. <laughs> we do need to give you some kind of a, a coda and an epilogue. I should say that as we're working our way through this, um, uh, our producer's been very complimentary on your accents, apart from your Bertie Hearn one. So in this coda, please don't try one of those. The, the words Wurzel Gummidge were mentioned yeah. in relation to that. But... <laughs> I, I suppose to come back to the, the kind of questions I was asking at the start of this particular episode, what did it all mean? What did it all amount to? Where does Bertie Ahern fit into the jigsaw of the way this country works, the way it operates, the way it has developed? What can we say about all that, both as, as a leader of his party, as a leader of his country, and as the, the person at the helm at a real crucial time in Irish history? I mean, he is both the person who is there at this time of great and inevitable change, but he is also instrumental in guiding the direction that that change takes. And I think historians, it's often a useful exercise. I always do it at the end of the year when we're writing our interminable end of year reviews, you know, to ask yourself, you know, what will the historians of the future remember about 2023? What will they say the important things were in that year? You know, I suppose one of the questions we'd be asking ourselves uh, at the end of this year is, will the historians of the future pay much attention to the payments to Ryan Tuberty, the late, late show? I suspect not. So let's pull that lens out a little bit and think, what will the historians 50 years hence or 100 years hence think of the career of Bertie Ahern? And it seems to me he will be remembered for two things um, above all. There will be the peace process in the north, the ending of the IRA's campaign of, of violence. He was one of several people who were instrumental in that, but nobody was more important than him. And I think we assessed it in one of the previous episodes that had anybody else been Taoiseach, any of the other available candidates been Taoiseach at the time that that peace deal is unlikely to have got over the line at that time, maybe it would have happened subsequently. I mean, there were tectonic shifts taking place, you know, they would have headed in some direction. But Ahern appreciated that those shifts were taking place and I think he sought to direct them. And I think with a high degree of success in many respects that he did that. And then the second? I think the other thing is the economic progress that the country makes under his watch. Now, we discussed previously how many of these things were already in play. The Celtic Tiger had been born when Bertie Hearn took over in 97, though we should not overlook the fact that he plays as uh, as a member of previous governments and as a finance minister in previous governments in setting the conditions for the Celtic Tiger 
wider, especially the period of industrial peace that is so helpful in facilitating the IDA's efforts at getting inward investment and so forth, right? But there's no doubt that the Celtic Tiger is beginning to roar by the time he takes over. What he does is he directs it. Uh, he and McCreevy, and, you know, we've discussed previously how McCreevy had an outsized role in that. But, but in a way, was that was acting, by choice. That was, by, that was by one of the choices that Ahern made. That yeah. was by yeah. uh, Ahern's mm. uh, choice. And But by that measure, of course, Bertie Ahern must take responsibility for many of the things that went wrong subsequently economically. But that's a two-sided coin. You know, there is a fantastic economic boom that brings wealth such as this country had never seen. However, it was distributed. There's no doubt but that as per your previous comments about taxi drivers uh, buying apartments in Bulgaria, however wise that was, there was no doubt but that the old Lamassian idea of the rising tide lifting all boats certainly did at that period. But the flip side of that is those poor decisions, I think, and lack of decisions and lack of intervention that subsequent to 2004, 2005, that allowed the bubble to inflate to the extent that when the crash came, and the crash wasn't caused by Bertie Ahern and his governments, but what they were culpable for, I think, was the fact that the crash was so much worse here. There's one other which may people may see as smaller, but this is a politics podcast. And Ahern is also a pivotal figure in the development of party politics in Ireland. He's the man who takes it from the presumption that the choice is always going to be about Fianna Fáil versus the rest, that a one-party government might be just about within reach, that he recognises that that time is gone forever. And he surfs that wave very effectively in understanding that in a series of coalitions, which is what keeps him in power. And then he's the last great Fianna Fáil leader in that sense because then the collapse comes and that's those days are never coming again. So the new dispensation in which we find ourselves now in 2023 with the much more variegated, fragmented political system is what followed Ahern. Now, how much he is to, to blame or to be, you know, that's to be ascribed to him, I'm not sure. I think that's right. And I think that Bertie probably realised before anybody in Fianna Fáil, back in the early 90s, that the glory days of single party government were never going to come again. And from the first day of his leadership of Fianna Fáil, he makes it clear that he is in the business of extending the appeal of Fianna Fáil. If he couldn't get number one votes, he was as interested almost in number twos and threes and fours and fives. He was interested in building connections with other parties in opposition. So he has a ready-made coalition deal with the Progressive Democrats by the time the 1997 election comes. He becomes the man who transforms Fianna Fáil from the party that had all the power for most of the time to the party that under his watch had most of the power all of the time. And that's a trade-off that he's very comfortable in making because he is by nature a consensualist. He's not a Fianna Fáil ultra. He's willing to cooperate with people in other parties. He doesn't see everyone outside Fianna Fáil as an enemy. But there's a deeper point as well, I think, about what is happening in structurally in Irish politics at this time. And if you look at like Fianna Fáil compared to, you know, the, the, the Christian Democrats in Italy or the Social Democrats in Sweden, these phenomenal successful parties who've been in power for decades uh, and decades. They're all of a kind of a similar model. You know, they have their own national idiosyncrasies, but they are all essentially catch-all 
national movements who draw their support from all parts of society. And in Fianna Fáil's case, that is aligned to a tribal loyalty to the party and its leaders. And, you know, that is kind of mirrored on the other side of the political divide by Fianna Gael to a less intense degree. But this politics that Ahern grows up in and becomes active in the 70s and uh, and the 80s. That is where Fianna Fáil could rely on the votes of 40 plus percent of voters in every single election, irrespective of what was happening. But that begins to change and it begins to change for exactly the reasons that it's changing elsewhere in Europe and that you would expect it to change. There's greater urbanisation, there's higher educational attainment, that social ties are beginning to fray a little and the old idea that that house down the road has 10 Fianna Fáil votes in it, that no longer becomes a certainty. But Bertie Hearn's political success masks this natural decline, I think, in, uh, in Fianna Fáil's natural, reliable, residual electoral strength. And Bertie Ahern gets 40 plus votes in every election that he contests. But he is doing this from a smaller base of natural, loyal Fianna Fáil votes. He's actually going out and winning those votes. Now, we subsequently discover that he's going out and buying those votes with our own money. But it is still a political achievement of some virtuosity. But it's also the reason that when the tide goes out for Fianna Fáil then, it doesn't just drop. It really goes it out. It really goes out. Because he has, a Hearn, paradoxically, a Hearn's political success has masked the increasing weakness of Fianna Fáil. The stuff of the constituencies that you were talking about, the kind of the, the decay of the of the institutions, the common structure and all, all of that. All that sort of stuff, but also just a natural decline in political loyalty, mm. you know, in a society that is changing and whose younger generations simply don't take their politics from their parents in the way maybe that their parents did from the Civil War generation. And so when the tide goes out for Fianna Fáil, they don't just drop from 40% to 30%. They don't even drop to, to 20%. They dropped to 14% in the election of 2011. And at that stage, of course, it looks like the party is over. There will never be a comeback for Fianna Fáil. But I suppose you... That's another series of podcasts. I mean, these kind of big ideas like, you know, great man theories of history as opposed to, you know, social theories of the way that history develops will only, will only get you so far. And there's always a question about any political leader about whether on the one hand they are, you know, they are leading and shaping events and pushing them forward or whether they're just surfing on a wave of events, economic and other other elements that they may or may not have any, any control over. I suppose just to articulate the perspective, which was probably emanating from this building, from the Irish Times, and its editorials and much of its commentary over over quite a lot of this this period, the argument might be that with more careful stewardship, the benefits of the Celtic Tiger would have been largely reaped anyway without a lot of the frittering away which happened in this argument over that period and that we would certainly not have suffered quite as disastrous a debacle as happened and that we're still suffering and our children will suffer as a result of what happened between 2008 and 2011. I think we should probably be careful to turn the peroration of this particular odyssey into a declaration that the Irish Times was right all along. Well, I but think, there, I think yeah, the archive is there to prove me wrong on that, Jim. But, but there is, there's no doubt. I think, you know, even Bertie Ahern's staunchest defenders 
would say that there are things that could have been done an awful lot better. And in particular, I would hone in on that period before and after the 2007 election as a period when far-reaching decisions were made that entailed great damage to the country and misery to, uh, to some of its people. But in a way, they were of a piece with the entire approach to politics that had manifested itself throughout this period. And that was what I previously dubbed sort of a showtime politics, where the, the acquisition and retention of power was more important than the application of that power towards good government. And that may sound a trifle pious. And of course, politics is a rough trade and you've got to be in power to make use of that power for uh, for the public good. But I think it is incontestable that while the governments that Bertie Ahern led transformed Ireland in many good ways, they also made poor decisions at points uh, along the way that could and should have been made differently. And I think the root of those two sides of the coin, to mix my metaphors, they come from the same place, which is this dedication to the achievement of power above all else. And you would like to think that it could have been done better. There's no doubt that, you know, he was a brilliant tactician and a brilliant strategist. He had an amazing connection with ordinary Irish people, almost right up to the time of his departure, the 2007 uh, election win. Against all the odds, uh, demonstrated that. As a Taoiseach, he had a brilliant temperament for the job. He had dedication to it. He worked like a dog at it. But there were things, many things, that could and should have been done better. And I suppose for you know, for what was a transformational period in Irish society and in Irish politics, some of the things that had dogged us always continue to dog us. We're still bad at long-term planning. There's still a tendency towards short-termism in a lot of government policy making. We are still inclined to boom and bust. But He was a political giant and he defined an era. And I think that his successors, to a large extent, still live in his shadow. And that's it from us for our entire series. Thanks to Pat for his sterling efforts to tell this story and even try to make some sense of it all from time to time. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. We do hope that you enjoyed this. Uh, Normal service is going to be resumed from the next episode of Inside Politics, which will be in your feeds very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thank you for listening.